We're going to be learning the Hamedrash Vahamasa and Parshas Vayigash. And interestingly, Rabbi Cheskel Lipschitz tells us the context for the Drusha that he gave this when he was leaving his first job. So this was his goodbye speech. So the Drusha focuses on the story of Yosef inviting his father Yaakov and his brothers down to Egypt once he revealed himself to them. And Yosef tells them that they shouldn't be upset about what they did because Hashem organized this whole plot so that he would be in Egypt and be able to save them. And Yosef tells them to go get Yaakov and to all come down. And then he sort of proves to them that he's Yosef. He says, You yourselves see that my mouth is speaking to you. So the Medrash explains that since he was speaking in Hebrew, that was the proof that he was in fact Yosef. So the Medrash Vahamasa has a few literary questions. He's going to explain this story. Now he also refers to an earlier Medrash in last week's part the Torah says that Yosef recognized his brothers and they did not recognize him. So the simple explanation is, as the Gemara says, because Yosef left when he was young, so he did not have a beard. He was not matured at that point, And now he was a full adult man with a beard. So the brothers could not recognize him. Whereas the brothers were older when they sold him. So they already had beards. So they didn't look that different. So that's why Yosef was able to physically recognize them, but they could not recognize him him. But there's a medrash which has a different interpretation of this. It interprets it in an emotional way. That Yosef recognized his brothers, meaning he acknowledged their humanity when he was in charge of them, when he could have hurt them. But they did not recognize Yosef when he was in their control. So when they had the opportunity to hurt Yosef, they took it, but Yosef did not take the opportunity to hurt them. So the Hamedrash Ramasa wants to understand why is the Medrash interpreting the Pasuk in this way. So he says that when someone loves another person, there's two types of love. There's conditional love where they love them for a specific reason. There's an equation to their love. And then there's unconditional love where a person truly loves the other person and there's not a whole equation behind it. Now, the difference is someone who loves someone else conditionally, so they want to see them, they want to get together with them, but there's all sorts of other thoughts in their head about who's going to be more honored, who's going to have a better spot at the table, how's the meeting going to go. So they're very worried about their own honor. As opposed to someone who really, truly loves the other person, they don't care about all those details. They just want to see and spend time with the other person. So this was the difference between the brothers and Yaakov. Even though the brothers no longer hated Yosef as they did earlier in the story, they now loved him, but they love him conditionally. So they're still very concerned about who's going to go to who and what the proper protocol is. As opposed to Yaakov, who loves Yosef truly, so he's just going to rush down to Egypt to be able to see Yosef, and he's not going to be bothered with any equations. So those are the two arguments that Yosef gives his brothers in terms of why they should come down to Egypt. The first is geared towards the brothers, because since they love him conditionally, so they're going to say, why should we all come down to Egypt? It's easier for you, Yosef, to come up to Canaan. You're only one person. You're younger. So you should be the one to come to us as opposed to us coming to you. So that's why Yosef gives them a whole speech that since there's a famine, they are the ones that need to come down to Egypt instead. He can't come up to Canaan. 
Now, they could say, you're the second in command in Egypt. So you come to Canaan and Paro will send you with food and will be provided for. So the brothers could counter that Yosef is just making excuses why he can't come to Canaan. But if he comes, then Paro will be happy to send him with food. So that's why Yosef in his language subtly communicates to the brothers that the reason Paro provides for him is because he is a minister in Paro's government. But it's not the type of position that he can leave his job and move to another country and still be supported by Paro. So the implication of what Yosef is telling his brothers, and Ahmed Ramasa reads this into the language of the Torah, that Yosef says, Samani Hashem Laav Leparo. I'm very honored in Paro's court. Laadon Lechol Beso. I'm in charge of his whole estate. So he's basically telling them, I have a position, a role in this government, but if I leave this government, so then Paro's not going to take care of me anymore. So I'm unable to travel to Canaan with you. You're going to have to come down to me. So that's the argument that Yosef makes to his brothers, that they are the ones that need to come down to him, even though there's more of them and they're older, but they shouldn't worry about that because of the famine, they need to come to Egypt. Now that's all in terms of the brothers. But when it comes to Yaakov, so Yosef understands that Yaakov truly loves him. He doesn't need any excuses why he should come down to Egypt, he's going to come running the minute he hears that Yosef is there. But Yaakov's going to be bothered by a different question, which is how are he and his whole family going to be treated when they come to Egypt? Are they going to be able to live comfortably and continue practicing their religion? Or are they going to be mistreated? Because Yaakov's going to assume that in all these years, Yosef has assimilated. He's no longer a good Jew. So Yaakov's going to be worried that Yosef is having a successful career in Mitzrayim because he gave up his Judaism. But Yaakov and the rest of his family who are not willing to do so, so that's going to be the question bothering Yaakov. Are they going to be able to live a comfortable religious life in Egypt? So that's why Yosef changes his language when he talks about bringing Yaakov down. He's trying to tell Yaakov that he is still a pious religious Jew. He has not compromised his Judaism in order to become powerful in Egypt. So that's why he says, Samani Elohim Adon. I am a powerful Lord in this country, but he's referring to his religiosity, that he's remained pious. So instead of telling his father about how powerful he is politically in Egypt, that he'll be able to support them, for Yaakov, he tells him that he's still a righteous, observant Jew. And that's why he refers to speaking in Hebrew. He's not just giving them a practical sign that he's Yosef, but he's showing them that he's still connected to his birth, to the language of his youth, to the Hebrew that he grew up with, he's still a connected Jew. So now Yaakov can come down knowing that he's going to be treated well. So that's his first explanation. Now he says that there's another way to interpret what Yosef is saying. The Gemara has the line, Gidolim tzadikim b'misasam yosem b'chayehem, that tzadikim are greater after death than in their lives. Which means that the legacy of a tzaddik can sometimes be more influential than what they accomplished in their lifetime. Now, says the Medrash Vamasa, this applies not only to the legacy, but also to how people think and react to the tzaddik. When they're alive, sometimes they have some enemies. People don't think that highly of them. But after they die, their stock goes up and everyone comes to love them. It's like people have a little metaphor, Achrei mos kedoshim emor. 
Those are the names of the Parshas in Vayikra, which literally mean that after death, people say they're righteous. So people come to appreciate someone more after their death than in their lifetime. And the reason for this, one factor is jealousy. Because when the tzaddik is alive, people feel a certain amount of jealousy for him. But after he dies, so the jealousy goes away and they're able to appreciate the person. Especially as the Hamedrash Vamasa explained in the previous Parsha, in the Drasha, that jealousy is more when people think that the person is inherently they've earned more of their success rather than if they think it's luck. So when it comes to tzaddik, people are jealous that this person has worked harder and achieved a higher level. But once they die, so then the jealousy goes away and then people are better able to appreciate their righteousness. So if we apply this to the story of Yosef, so as he explained in the previous drasha, the brothers hated Yosef because they thought that Yaakov loved him more because Yaakov considered Yosef inherently superior to them. They didn't realize that Yaakov just happened to love Yosef. It was random luck that Yosef was the son of his old age and Yaakov loved him. So there really was nothing for the brothers to be overly jealous of Yosef about. So now this setup will explain the different explanations for why the brothers didn't recognize Yosef in Egypt. The Gemara says it was because Yosef had matured and grown a beard, whereas the Medrash quotes another reason that they didn't have compassion on him when he was in their control and Yosef did have compassion on them. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, these are not really two different explanations. The Medrash is explaining the Gemara. Why were the brothers unable to see their brother Yosef physically? Now, of course, he had matured and grown a beard, but still, why were they not able to put together that this was their brother Yosef? Says the Medrash, it was because of an emotional block. They were unable to acknowledge to themselves their issues with Yosef and that he would be the king of Egypt. So because they hated him because of their jealousy, they convinced themselves that Yosef was nothing special. He's just a low-class person who spends his time bad-mouthing them and trying to convince Yaakov that he's better than them. But they were not able to see the inherent talent and greatness of Yosef because they were blinded by jealousy. So because the brothers were blinded, they knew that Yosef had been sold to slavery in Egypt. Egypt, and they assumed, well, Yosef is an unsuccessful person. So of course, he's going to have a miserable time in Egypt. He's probably going to be in some lowly position. He's going to be in a miserable situation. And that's what they went down to Egypt expecting, that they would find Yosef in the worst, lowest possible situation. There was no way they could have allowed themselves to imagine that Yosef would rise to be this powerful officer in the government that they were now speaking to. So when they're having these conversations with the second in command, there was no way emotionally that they could imagine that this was Yosef. It was an emotional block, and that's why they were unable to recognize Yosef physically. So the Medrash is not disagreeing with the Gemara, but it's adding 
onto it. That part of their block was not just physical, that Yosef grew up in the meantime, but also emotional, that they couldn't imagine, they couldn't allow themselves to believe that this powerful minister is their brother Yosef, who they thought so low of. And on the other hand, had the brothers allowed themselves originally not to be blinded by jealousy and to see that Yosef did have a lot of inherent talent and that he was destined for great things. So then they would have been able to recognize Yosef physically and put together that this was their brother Yosef that they had sold, who was always destined for great things, even though he came down to Egypt as a slave, but he ended up the second in command. So it says that Medrash Vamasa, we find this all the time in our own times, that people are blinded by jealousy and they can't even see anything good about the person that they're jealous of. They create a whole fiction about how this person is such a low class person and they have no talent because they're blinded by jealousy. But when we're talking about the Shvatim, so we're dealing with some of the greatest figures in Jewish history. So of course their jealousy is not of the same sort of people we see nowadays. These were tremendous tzaddikim and their jealousy is of a different sort. Says the Hamedrash Vamase, Yosef understood that his brothers would only be jealous of someone who was also a tzaddik. People in general are only jealous of someone that's in their same circles. So Yosef understood that his brothers would have no jealousy towards someone who didn't care about Judaism, no matter how successful that person was. The only type of person who would inspire the brothers' jealousy is someone who was also a tzaddik like them. So Yosef was worried that maybe the brothers are no longer jealous of him because they think that he's now an assimilated Egyptian. So that's why they don't care about all his success. Because since he's not connected to Judaism, they're not jealous of someone, even the second in command in Egypt, because he's assimilated and he's no longer an observant tzaddik. But Yosef is worried that once the brothers realize that he is still a tzaddik, he still is a committed Jew, so then the jealousy is going to return because now their brother is a tzaddik and he's successful, so maybe their jealousy is going to come back the way it was originally. Now, obviously, at this point, they could no longer hurt Yosef because he's not a little kid. He's a powerful minister in Egypt. So the brothers would not be able to do anything to Yosef anymore, but the situation would hurt them. They would be upset. They would be jealous again. So this is what Yosef is trying to prevent with the speech that he gives the brothers. He says to them, don't be upset at yourselves because Hashem is the one who orchestrated this whole thing so that I would be here in order to provide food for all of you. So he's telling them, first of all, you should appreciate the benefit of the situation you're in because you are being provided for by Hashem in a way that many other people are not. There's a famine and a lot of people are hungry, but you are going to get food from Hashem through me. So you are in a good situation. But in addition to that, Yosef is also telling them, don't be jealous of me because I'm so powerful and successful here in Egypt, because it's not a reflection of my inherent qualities. Again, people are jealous when they feel like this other person earned it. Says Yosef, I did not earn it through my own talent and hard work. Hashem orchestrated this. So it's as if I got lucky. Hashem chose me to to be the emissary to save all of you and to provide food. So it's as if this is a lucky situation that happened to me. So there's no reason 
reason for you to be jealous. So that's how Yosef is trying to calm down the potential jealousy. Now, says the Amedrash said, this is a political problem that any successful politician is going to face. Anyone who gets elevated by the king and starts to rise in political power, so his colleagues, the other politicians, the other ministers, are going to be jealous of his success that he's being elevated above them. So the solution to this is for this minister who's being elevated above the other people to shower them with all sorts of gifts and to give them all sorts of high and powerful positions where they make a lot of money. So then they feel less jealous of him because they're also benefiting from his success. So let's say the president puts a politician in his cabinet so his colleagues might be jealous of his success. But if he gives them all sorts of powerful positions in his department, so then they'll feel less jealous because they're also benefiting. But then the people will get upset because they see that this politician is giving all sorts of gifts and benefits to his close allies, which all comes from their tax money. So he's basically using the people's resources. He's taking from the citizens of the country in order to give nepotistic gifts to his close friends. So now the people are going to be upset. So basically any rising politician has a choice. Either his close colleagues can be upset and jealous, but the people won't be, or his close colleagues won't be upset, but the people will be upset. Someone's going to be upset with him unless he gets incredibly lucky and somehow he's able to navigate this situation and nobody's upset at him. So that's what Yosef is trying to tell his brothers, that he is in this unbelievably lucky situation where he's been able to balance his political rise that nobody is upset at him. Paro, as well as the high ministers, as well as the citizens, everybody likes him. And he attributes this to Hashem. So that's what he says, that Hashem sent me here. So ordinarily, there would be someone upset at me. But since Hashem is orchestrating this, so I am an Av Leparo. Paro respects me. Ula Adon Lechol Beso. His court, his ministers respect me. Ula Moshe Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim. And the whole land of Egypt, all the citizens obey me. So Yosef is telling them, I'm in a unique situation where no one's upset at me. So that's a sign that this all comes from Hashem. And again, you shouldn't be jealous of me. It's not my own inherent qualities that made me rise to this position, but Hashem gave it to me. So I'm just lucky and you don't need to be jealous. Now, says the Medrash Ramasa, Yosef is very concerned about his brother's jealousy coming back. But in fact, he did not need to be concerned about that because they had worked on themselves. They had repented and they were not going to be jealous of him this time around. But Yosef understood how deeply built in jealousy can be into a person's soul. So he wanted to be extra cautious and prevent any recurrence of this jealousy. So those are the two themes that the Amedrash V'amaset touches on in Yosef's speech to his brothers. One is that Yosef is differentiating between a conditional lover who's very worried about the proper protocol versus 
is someone who truly loves someone else and just wants to be together with them. And Yosef is also trying to calm down his brother's potential relapse of jealousy by saying to them that it was not his own hard work and success, but it was luck that Hashem gave him this position. Says the Hamedrash Vamasa very cutely that these themes all apply when a rabbi says a goodbye speech to his community. On the one hand, you have this division between people who truly love the rabbi versus people who like him, but it's conditional. It's part of an equation. While he was the rabbi, they felt there was some benefit from him. But now that he's leaving, they're not that concerned about it. They're okay to stay in touch a little bit. They'll send a letter. From afar, they can stay in touch and say hi to each other, but they're not that broken up that the rabbi is leaving. Then there's the people who truly love the rabbi, and it's very painful for them that he's leaving and going to a different community. So he describes these two different groups very nicely, that there's the people who will try as hard as they can to get the rabbi to stay. And then there's other people who will say, well, whatever's the best for the rabbi, if it's better for him in a new community, so then I wish him a lot of luck and hopefully we'll stay in touch. And then there's another group of people who have jealousy towards the rabbi. So they are happy that the rabbi is not going to be here anymore. And what the rabbi should say to them is that it was not his own merit that he was the rabbi and anything he may have done to offend them in his official capacity is not because he's better than them, but because Hashem placed him as the rabbi of this community. So it's random luck. So then they'll be less jealous of the rabbi. So in a very cute way, the Hamedrash Vahamasa compares Yosef's speech to his brothers to the parting goodbye speech that a rabbi gives his community. And he says that more than all of these groups, the people that love the rabbi, the people who like the rabbi but don't care about him that much, and the people who don't like the rabbi, more than all that, what's bothering the rabbi is that he knows that he probably messed up in certain decisions, even though he was trying to do the right thing. But no one can say that they never made a mistake. So the rabbi is worried as he's preparing to leave that he he knows that he probably messed things up at some point. And there's some people who have a legitimate complaint against him. So that's what bothers the rabbi when he's getting ready to leave. That what about the people who are legitimately upset because in fact he made the wrong decision in his official capacity as the rabbi. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, the answer to that is that once the rabbi leaves, the tensions will calm down and people will stop remembering some of the negative things. Now that he's gone, there'll be less jealousy, there'll be less ill will, and people will remember him kindly, so his legacy in the community will be better, and a lot of the tension and the ill will against him will recede in the coming years after he's gone. So that's the Hamedrash Vahamasa's insightful goodbye speech to his community, where he touches on a lot of the aspects of the rabbinate, which continue even nowadays into our times. Many rabbis of shoals in the modern world could give the exact same goodbye speech with a lot of the same themes reflecting a lot of the same groups in our own community. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. So that's the drusha. Now, the halacha discussion has to do with being a cosigner which in halacha is called an arev. So Yehuda uses that word at the beginning of this week's parsha, ki avdecha arev esanaar, that he's responsible for binyamin. So the medrash comments, and this basic idea appears in the Gemara and Yevamos Kuftesamud Beis, that there are three things people should avoid and three things that people should do. They should avoid collateral, co-signing, and a young girl getting married and leaving the marriage. And the three things they should do are 
chalitza instead of yibum. If a man dies with no children, the brother should do chalitza to his sister-in-law. Hafaras nedarim, absolving vows. Vahavas shalom and adam and bringing peace amongst people. So those are the three good things to do. So this gemara is against being a cosigner. Now the medrash adds on to that that the idea that one should avoid cosigning being an arev refers to Yehuda who became an arev. So the medrash vamasa wants to understand what is the point of this medrash connecting the opposition to being an arev with the story of Yehuda, which is a different type of arev. So to explain this, he begins with a question on the Rambam. The Rambam does not mention this statement of the Gemara that one should avoid arev being a cosigner or picadon collateral or that people should pursue heter nedarim absolving vows. The Rambam does not make mention of any of this, except that in Hilchos Deos, Hey Yud Gimel, where he's discussing the kind of character traits of Talmidei Chachamim, so there the Rambam writes that Talmidei Chachamim are generally not an Arev. They avoid being a cosigner. So it sounds like the Rambam is saying that this is a specific character trait of Torah scholars, whereas the Gemara seem to be saying that everyone should avoid being an Arev. So there's a question why the Rambam omits most of the statement of the Gemara. The only thing he does quote is that people should avoid Mion, where a young girl gets married, and instead do Chalitza. But the way he quotes this is very strange. In Hilchos Gerish in Yud Aleph Tes Zion, the Rambam says that a woman is allowed to marry someone who testified that she was divorced or that she did Mion when she was a young girl. Ula Olam Yisrachek Adam Me'edus Mion V'yizkarev L'Chalitza. Says the Rambam, people should avoid being a witness on a mion, and instead they should prefer chalitza. So this is a very strange formulation. Why is the Rambam focusing that people shouldn't be a witness for a mion when the problem in the Gemara is that people should avoid the case, the whole situation of mion? In addition, the Lecha Mishnah asks, there is a debate in the Gemara between Abishol and the Chachamim whether it's better to do chalitza or yibum. So the Gemara says that this comment that one should do chalitza follows the view of Abba Shaul that chalitza is better than yibum. But the Rambam rules like the Chachamim that yibum is better than chalitza. So why is the Rambam quoting this comment that people should do chalitza, which follows the view of Abba Shaul, which the Rambam does not rule according to Abba Shaul? So there seems to be a contradiction in the Rambam that he quotes a statement in the Gemara, which follows a view that he does not rule according to. So there's a lot of questions on the Rambam from this statement in the Gemara. Says that Medrash Ramasa, to answer the question of the Lechem Mishnah, so the Gemara could not have said that people should do Yibum, because that's a mitzvah. Obviously, we're not talking about mitzvahs in this statement, because of course you should do mitzvahs. Nobody needs to tell anyone that they should do three mitzvahs. So it's clear that we're not referring to mitzvahs, we're referring to good things. So what does it mean that people should do chalitza or possibly yibum? Those are mitzvahs. So the answer, says the Amedrash Vamasa, is that we're not talking about the actual act of yibum and chalitza. We must be saying that people should be witnesses or judges 
to help out with these type of actions. So the person doing the chalitza or the yibum has to do it, but the Gemara is encouraging people to help them by being a witness or a dayan on this. Just like hataras nedarim, absolving a neder, the Gemara is encouraging people to help other people be able to do so. Or havas shalom, it's not saying that people themselves should make peace, it's encouraging people to help other people make peace. Meaning the people who are doing these actions Actions themselves have a mitzvah to do so. This Gemara is adding that people should help them do so, even though the person helping doesn't have a direct mitzvah to do so. So that's why the language of the Gemara is la'olam yidabek adam. A person should cling to these things. In other words, we're not talking about the person who has to do it themselves. We're talking about the people who are helping them out. So now, based on this, the Hamedrash Vahamasa asks a phenomenally creative question. What does it mean to say that people should help someone do yibum? To do yibum, the couple doesn't need any help. They're just intimate, and that is the yibum. So what would it even mean to help someone do yibum? The Gemara says that the fact that the statement is to help people do chalitza indicates, like Abba Sha'ul, that chalitza is better than yibum. But even according to the chachamim, that yibum is better than chalitza, you don't need help to do yibum. So there would be no reason to say that someone should help someone else do yibum. So of course, of course, it's not going to say yidabek beyibum, help someone do yibum. So, how do we see from here anything having to do with the debate between Abishol and the Chachamim whether yibum or chalitza is preferable? So says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, a very creative answer. There is a question in the Achronim whether the mitzvah of chalitza is a mitzvah in and of itself. So just as there's a mitzvah of yibum in the case where they want to do chalitza, there's a mitzvah of chalitza. Or is chalitza not a mitzvah? It's just a way to allow this woman to go marry someone else other than her brother-in-law. So yibum is a mitzvah. Chalitza is just something which allows her to marry other people, but it's not a mitzvah. So the Chacham Tzvi in Simon Aleph and the Chuvis Chasim Sofer in Evan Ezer Simon Peihei, they hold that Chalitza is not a mitzvah. It's just a way for a woman to marry someone else. On the other hand, the view of the Zohar and the Sefer Amek Yehoshua Simon Chaf Gimel brings a lot of proofs to this, is the other way that Chalitza is a mitzvah in and of itself. Now, the Hamedrash Vamasa suggests that this debate whether chalitza is a mitzvah is also a debate in the Gemara. So if we assume that there are these two views in the Gemara, this will explain his question on the Gemara and answer why the Rambam records it the way he does. Because the Gemara that says that a person should try to help out with a chalitza must hold that chalitza is not a mitzvah. Because if chalitza is a mitzvah, so then we have the Hamedrash Vahamasa's question. Who says that chalitza is better than Yibum, maybe they're equal, but Yibum doesn't need any help from anyone, whereas Chalitza does. So the author of this Gemara must assume that Chalitza is not a mitzvah. So now the question is, why should someone help people do a Chalitza? If they would prefer to do Yibum, so then according to the Chachamim, Yibum is better. If they would prefer to do Chalitza, so then that's their right, but since there's no mitzvah of Chalitza, why is it such a good thing for someone to help them? 
So to that, the Gemara says, the answer must be that this comment agrees with Abba Shaul, that doing chalitza is better than yibum. So that's why it's a good thing to help people do chalitza in order to prevent yibum. In other words, if they anyways want to do chalitza, so then there's nothing special about helping them because it's not a mitzvah and they're anyways not planning to do yibum. The point of this comment is that you should try to convince people to do chalitza over Yibum, so that's the view of Abba Shaul. So if that passage in the Gemara assumes that Chalitza is not an inherent mitzvah, so that explains why that comment must be following the view of Abba Shaul. On the other hand, says the Hamedrash Vahamaseh, the Rambam could hold like the other view in the Gemara, like the Zohar, that Chalitza is a mitzvah inherently. Now, the Chasam Sofer and the Magid Mishnah assume that the Rambam's view is that Chalitza is not a mitzvah, like the Chacham Tzvi and the Chasam Sofer. But says the Amedrash Ramase, he found a proof in the Rambam himself that Chalitza is a mitzvah. Because the Rambam in Hilchus Bikurim Yudbeis Aleph writes that there is a mitzvah to redeem the firstborn donkey with another animal. Ve'im la'ratzalif doso, if he's not going to redeem it, mitzvah's essay la'arpo. Then there's a mitzvah to cut its neck. So the Rambam lists Varafto cutting the donkey's neck as a mitzvah. Now, the Ravid disagrees. He says, how could you call this a mitzvah? The Torah is saying there's a mitzvah to redeem the firstborn donkey. Now, if you're not going to redeem it, which is the mitzvah, so you have to do Varafto, but that's not a mitzvah. That's just a backup plan to deal with someone who won't do the mitzvah. Now, the Rambam in the Sefer HaMitzvos, Mitzvos Asei Pei Beis, so there he himself poses the question of the Ravid, and he says, someone's going to ask me, why am I counting each of these as a separate mitzvah, the mitzvah to redeem the donkey, and the mitzvah to cut its neck? It should only be one mitzvah, the Torah is saying, if you don't redeem it, then va'arafto. Says the Rambam, it's the same as Yibum. Yibum and Chalitza are each their own mitzvah, and again, the Torah said, if you don't do Yibum, you do Chalitza. So you see from that case that there could be two mitzvahs mitzvahs, even though one of them is the backup plan for the other. So the same is true when it comes to the Bechor donkey, even though one is a backup plan, they're both separate mitzvahs. Says the Amedrash Ramasa, from this comment of the Rambam, we see clearly that Chalitza is its own separate independent mitzvah. It's not just a way to deal with a case where they don't want to do yibum. So now this very brilliantly will answer the question of the Lechem Mishnah. Even though the Rambam rules like the Chachamim, that Yibum is preferable to Chalitza, he still quotes the comment of the Gemara that a person should always help out with Chalitza because according to the Rambam, it's a mitzvah to do Chalitza. So there's a point to helping someone do Chalitza. Now, even though the Gemara said that only fits according to Abba Shaul, that's because the Gemara holds there is no mitzvah of Chalitza. The only point of helping with a chalitza is to prevent yibum. But the Rambam who holds like the other view that there is a mitzvah inherently of chalitza so he records this halacha even according to the chachamim meaning it's preferable to do yibum but if they decide not to do yibum so then one should help them do chalitza. So now the problem is still why did the Rambam omit the other four statements in the Gemara. He only quotes with regard to Miun and Chalitza, but he doesn't quote that people should try to do Havas Shalom and Hataras Nedarim, and he doesn't quote that people should avoid Pikadon and Ervon. 
So in terms of the first two, says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, that we could answer. First of all, the idea that people should increase peace in the world is already explicit in the Mishnah in Peya that we say after the Birkas Torah every morning. And the Rambam himself quotes this in Hilchos Deos chapter 6. So this is a well-known concept of Havas Shalom Ben Adam Lechavero. And the Gemara in Yevamos that adds that into this statement is just adding it in because it fits. But this is not the real source of for it. So the Rambam already discussed it and he doesn't need to repeat it again. Now, in terms of Afaras Nedarim, so here he gives a cute answer, which is based on a comment of the Magan Avram, which is to the Shulchan Arach Arachayim Simen Kuf Chav Ches Sif Mem. So in a different context, the Magan Avram says the following idea, that there are certain things which they used to do in the times of the Mishnah, which we no longer do. And the reason is because there is a debate in the Gemara whether you have to tell the person who's doing Hataras Nedarim what the actual vow is about or not. So can you just go to a rabbi and say to him, listen, I'd like to absolve all my vows or do you need to specify what the vows are? Now, we hold that you do need to specify the vows. But says the Magan Avram, there are certain cases where the Rambam is concerned that some rabbi may make a mistake and follow the other view and just absolve vows in a generic way, and that will cause problems. So now applying this comment to the Magan Avram says the Hamedrash Vahamasa in the statement in the Gemara in Yevamos, which is made by Bar Kapra, so it's an early statement. It's right at the end of the Mishnah period. So at that point, it was common practice for people to specify which vows they were trying to absolve. So that's why he could say that people should help other people do Hataras Nedarim because if it's a vow, which is a good vow, like let's say they pledge to do a mitzvah, so then the rabbi just won't do Hataras Nedarim. Once he hears the specific vows, then he can decide whether to go ahead with the Hataras Nedarim. But the Rambam, who, as we said, according to the Magan Avram, is concerned that later in history, there may be rabbis who don't know this halacha and they absolve vows in a generic way without hearing the specific vows. So according to the Rambam, we do not encourage people to do hataras nedarim because then they might just absolve all the vows, including the good vows, which are to do a mitzvah. So that's why the Rambam omits hataras nedarim from his list as well. So that explains why the Rambam omits these other two good things and he only quotes helping people with chalitza. Now, why did the Rambam omit that people should avoid a picadon leaving collateral or being a cosigner? So in terms of the collateral, the Hamedrish Vamasa explains that the problem with collateral is that perhaps the owner is going to take his collateral back and then demand his collateral from the creditor, and the creditor is going to have to make a vow. Now, even though this is a true vow, he does not have the collateral anymore, but still the fact that he makes a vow could be a problem. Now, this is a debate between the Rambam and the Ramban. The Rambam in his Sefer HaMitzvah says that there is a mitzvah to swear truthfully and to use Hashem's name. So according to the Rambam, swearing truthfully is a good thing. 
The Ramban questions him, and he argues based on the Gemara that all swearing is bad, even if it's truthful. So now, says the Amedrash Vamasa, if the Rambam holds that there is a debate in the Gemara, which is the same as his debate with the Ramban, whether swearing truthfully is good or bad, so this would again explain his omission. Bar Kapra holds that swearing truthfully is wrong, as the Ramban says. So that's why you should avoid swearing even truthfully. So so that's why you should avoid taking a collateral because it might lead to having to make a shvua. Whereas the Rambam rules like the other view that you should make a truthful shvua. So that's why he's not opposed to collateral. He thinks it's fine to take a collateral. And if someone takes it from you and then the owner wants it back, you'll just swear truthfully that it was stolen from you. So the one lingering question is why the Rambam does not record the Gemara's opposition to becoming an Areva cosigner. So the Hamedrash Ramasa discusses the Rambam's view about a number of issues having to do with cosigning, but he quotes that the Rambam in Hilchus Malva Velove Chaf Hey Yudalid quotes a case, If someone says, loan this guy money and I will be an Arev, I guarantee guarantee that I will bring this borrower to you, I'll make sure that he doesn't escape like a bail bondsman. I'm not guaranteeing the money, but I guarantee that I'll make sure the borrower himself is here. So says the Rambam, there are some Ga'onim who hold that in such a case, the person becomes a full-fledged Arev, a guarantor, and they have to pay back the money. And then there are others who hold that even if the Arev said, if I can't bring him back, so either he escapes or he dies, if I cannot bring the borrower back in person, then I'm going to owe the money. That still does not work. That's a case of asmachta where the person was not really intending to owe money. And the Arev does not owe any money in that case. And the Rambam says, I agree with this second view. So the Rambam holds that an Arev on the person physically, that he's guaranteeing that the borrower will be here in person, even if he agrees that if the borrower escapes, he's going to pay back the actual money, that does not work because it's an Asmachta. An Arev has to be on the money, not on the person. Says the Amerish but now the question is, what about Yehuda? He's an Arev on Binyamin's body. He's guaranteeing that he'll return Binyamin himself. So according to the Rambam, how did that work? It should have been an Asmachta, and Yehuda should not have been a valid Arev. So the Hamedrash Vamasa answers based on a comment of the Ramah in Darke Moshe, in Tur, Choshen Mishpat, Simen Reish, Zion, Tzifkat, and Vav. The Ramah quotes that on a Deoraisa level, Asmachta would work. The whole issue of Asmachta is only Drabanan. So if someone makes a pledge that they're going to sell something or buy something and they don't really mean it, on a Torah level that would have worked and the acquisition would take place. The Rabbanan came around and said, said that doesn't work. So that explains why in the case of Yehuda, he did become an Arev, even though it was Asmachta, because that was obviously before the Drabanan. 
as opposed to the Rambam who's after the Rabbanan said that Asmachta doesn't work. So that's why he says that an Arev on the person's body would not work. And in fact, says the Amedrash Vamasa that if you look in the Dark Moshe, so he actually seems to say this because he says that the way we know Asmachta works Mida Oraisa is because Yehuda was an Arev. So again, that reinforces the point that even though this is an Asmachta Arev and it would not have worked on a Rabbanan level, but Yehuda was able to do so because he was before the Rabbanan. So now similar to this case, the Hamedrash Vamasa says that there's going to be a debate about an open-ended Arev, someone who just says, I'm willing to pay back whatever this loan is. So there's going to be some debate whether that works. Now the Gemara explains that Bar Kapra is against an Arev because there was a place called Sheltzion where instead of collecting from the borrower, they would just collect straight from the Arev, which is not proper, first you should go to the borrower. And if he's unable to repay, then you go to the Arev. So the Hamedrish Vahamasa asks on this, why would Bar Kapra say that everyone in the world should avoid becoming an Arev because in this one place they do it wrong? What does it matter how they do it in one place if you're in a place where they do it properly, so then you should be able to be an Arev? So the answer is that Bar Kapra follows the view that an open-ended Arev would work. So that's why he's concerned that there could be people like this Sheltzion place where they're just going to go straight to the Arev and start taking the money even before they even ask the borrower to pay back. Whereas the Rambam holds that in such an open-ended case of Arev, it would be Asmachta, it would not work. So again, according to the Rambam, the only type of Arev that works is where it's a very focused agreement that he's going to repay the money only if the borrower can't repay. So that's why the Rambam is not opposed to becoming an Arev because open-ended Arev doesn't work because it's Asmachta. And the proper type of Arev is something that people don't need to avoid. So that's why, again, the Rambam does not quote the Gemara's opposition to Arev because that follows one view, whereas the Rambam has a different view about how Arev works. And according to him, you don't need to avoid the more limited, focused type of guarantor. So now based on this, says the Medrash Vahamasa, that's why the Medrash connects this statement in the Gemara with the story of Yehuda. Because it's trying to say, like we just explained in the Rambam, that when the Gemara says it's better to avoid being an Arev, it's referring specifically to these open-ended types of Arev, as opposed to a more focused Arev. So that's not a problem. So that's what the Medrash says. The type of Arev to avoid is Yehuda's Arev, which is a more open-ended type of Arev. It's what we would call Asmachta. So it works for Yehuda, but it would no longer work nowadays. And that's the kind of Arev where the person doesn't specify that the borrower has to try to repay first, and then they can come to the Arev if that's not made explicit. So then you should avoid that type of Arev. So that explains the connection between the statement at the beginning of the Medrash and the story of Yehuda. And uh, Medrash Vamasa ends off with a list of some of the practical ideas that emerge from this whole discussion that first of all, according to the Rambam, one should help someone do a chalitza, even according to the view that Yibum is preferable, because chalitza itself is also a mitzvah. Because according to him, the Rambam's view is that chalitza is an inherent mitzvah. In addition, the Rambam holds that one does not need to help with hataras nedarim, even though the Gemara says it's a good thing to do, but nowadays that does not apply. And the Rambam also holds that it's okay to take a collateral, even though the Gemara says 
to avoid it, but according to the Rambam, you can do it. Also, the Rambam holds that open-ended arev, being a guarantor without specifying the details, does not take effect. Also, the Rambam would hold that an open-ended guarantor is a problem, but a more specific type of guarantor, which is the only one that works according to halacha, is okay to do. And also, the Rambam would hold, like the Dark Moshe says, that asmachta works midah oraisa, only midrabanan it doesn't work.